blessed gospel light, let it shine forevermore. Thank you, Greg. Notice as you get older, your eyes don't see things the way, or I think maybe it's the print on the book has gotten a little bit blurry there. I've got these trifocals, and there's like not a place where I can go to and see things clearly. Amen. Amen. That's exactly, amen. Well, we as a church congregation are embarked on an exciting journey now, aren't we? We have a new pastor coming in probably a month or maybe even a little bit less than a month. And so this, this, on this phase of, of our journey here, as we're preparing for that to happen, uh, we have been discussing our vision, the LIGHT acronym. And last week we talked about the L of our acronym, Loving One Another. We discussed that this love is more than mere fellowship or friendliness or shaking hands or that buzz of conversation, but it also includes the need to share our lives with the people around us and to become joined in unity and joined in love and joined in knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And today we're going to discuss the I in our acronym, inspired by biblical truth, or biblical, yes, And it reads, in the actual vision, we believe that the word of God is the sole and final authority for all matters of faith and living. Therefore, we teach and preach from the Bible, not human resources. And the scriptural references attached to this idea are Psalm 119, three verses from that, John 17, 17, and Peter 2, 2. And so let's look at these verses together. And seek God's wisdom today as we journey forth. Psalm 119 verse 9 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Psalm 119.11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Psalm 119.105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. John 17, 17 says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And in 1 Peter 2, 2, it says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Let us pray. Lord God, your word is truth. Your word is the only truth. And we pray today that you would put your truth into our heart, that your Holy Spirit would come and install it there, it would make it the king of our lives, that we might obey it, that we might go out and share it, that we might share our joy with those around us, and that we might build each other up as we prepare for this new direction that our church is taking, Lord God, that we might prepare ourselves to welcome Dirk and Katie as members of this family, to build them up to disciple them and to mentor them in their long journey into Christian maturehood as well, Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we'll discuss today what inspired actually means, what is inspiration, and how do those relate to the Holy Spirit, who is the source of all inspiration, really. Psalm 43.3 says, Send out your light and your truth, God. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling." Send out your light and your truth. We are the light on the hill. We claim to be, and we'll find out whether that's true or not as we look at the results of our work when we see Jesus come again. But in the meantime, 
let us try to uphold that standard of being light and truth to those around us. Well, we gather here each week because we're summoned here by God himself. And God has a word to share with us every week. And since this is God himself who speaks to us in his word, his inscriptured, inspired speech takes center stage. It's not the music, it's not the videos, it is the word that takes center stage. And it becomes the agenda of every song and every sermon that we hear in church. And it's why we're here. Yet in the church at large, there has been a shift from holiness to relevancy. Many churches no longer preach the word, but preach from other man-made sources which seem more relevant to, to them. Our church, however, clings to the word of God and its teaching. And we say we will teach from nothing else but the Bible. Both Christian joy and holiness depend largely on how well we know God's word. When I say no, I'm not referring to mere intellectual knowledge, but rather how well we know intellectually, yes, but also how well we practice the principles of God's written revelation. In John 15, 11, Jesus said, These things, the word, that I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. And in John 17, 13, he says, These things, which are the word, I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. And in 17, 17, he says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Which, of course, is one of the scriptural references in our acrostic. Christian joy and holiness depend upon the word, depend upon Jesus Christ. Jesus, in John 18, was being questioned by Pilate on whether he was, in fact, a king, as the Jewish leaders were saying he claimed. Such a claim would have resulted in the death penalty because it would have subverted the power of Caesar. And in answer to one of Pilate's questions, and those of you who have listened to the Truth Project will recognize this, in answer to one of Pilate's questions, Jesus said, "'You say that I'm a king.'" For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? What is truth? Well, God's word is truth. The world around us does not offer true truth. Ray Stedman has said, the world lives by what it thinks is truth, by values and standards which are worthless, but which the world esteems highly. Jesus said, what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. That's from Luke 16, 15. How can we live in that kind of a world, touch it and hear it, having it poured into our ears and exposed to our eyes day and night, and not be conformed to its image and squeezed into its mold? The answer is, we must know the truth. We must know the word And life, the way God sees it, the way it really is, we must know it so clearly and strongly that even while we're listening to these alluring lies, we can brand them as lies and know that they are wrong. That's a great quote, and it's absolutely true. How do we live in the midst of this and not be sucked into it? What does the world think about us believers, idealists? Simplistic dreamers, pie-in-the-sky people, believers in fantasy and magic and miracles, unrealistic to think that the Bible has all the answers. Get real, the world tells us. Well, despite what the world thinks about Christians, we are the great realists because our realism is the truth of God. 
God's truth, his word, leads to greater joy and sanctification, greater than anything that the world has to offer. These fleeting pleasures and things that we acquire and see, they seem like a lot of fun, but they're nothing compared to the joy that awaits us in the world to come. And when we become followers of Jesus Christ, we developed a new relationship to the Bible, which reveals the mind of Christ. Before I became a believer in the Lord Jesus, I thought the Bible was interesting, but it didn't really speak to me very much other than on certain topical matters. Well, you know, if I was angry, I could look in the concordance in the back and find a few scriptures on anger or wealth or whatever the issue was. After the Holy Spirit's work of regeneration in me, I began to develop a love for and an appetite for the scriptures. I was changed. And I would submit that anybody that has been regenerated shows that change in various ways, but one is always an appetite and a hunger for the word of the Lord. I developed a strong desire to know God's word as the best way to know God. And then I discovered that knowing God led me to obey him. None of these things was a surprise to God, but it sure was to me. And all are talked about, all of those things are talked about in Psalm 119, which provides insight into the Christian's new relationship with the Bible. Verses 47 and 48 say, For I find my delight in your commandments, delight, which I love. I love your commandments. Now, I don't know about you guys, but before I became a believer, I didn't love someone to command me what to do. I wanted to do my own thing. I wanted to be my own boss. I certainly did not delight in reading commandments. Verse 48, I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. And verses 16 and 93 and 176 say, I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Love, delight, my all in all. I will think about them all day long. We have all had that experience about worldly things, right? If your team is playing in the Super Bowl, oh, I've been thinking about that for two weeks now. A a boat, golf clubs, an RV, a sewing machine, whatever. We all think about these things and we meditate. Well, maybe not everybody about sewing machines. But we we think about those things. We want them. We, We picture them in our mind, okay? Verse 93 says, I will never forget your precepts. For by them you have given me life. Verse 176, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. Never forget your commandments. How do we forget God's commandments? By not thinking about them. We forget things by not thinking about them. When you return from a great vacation, right? It's fresh in your mind, all the details. Can't stop thinking about it. Can't stop talking about it. Well, in a few weeks or months, we stop talking about it. We stop telling everyone about it. We start to forget the details. And eventually it becomes a memory, a distant memory, and we forget how great it was. How do we remember it? Well, we look at photos. Oh, I remember that. That was great. Yeah. How do we not forget? How do we not forget God's word? The psalmist gives us the way to do that. He says in verses 44 and 45, I will keep your law continually forever and ever, and I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. So we keep it on our mind all the time. The word is truth. And we know that the word and that the truth is Jesus Christ. He is the word of God. 
Remember, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And to know about the truth is not nearly as important as personally being in fellowship with the truth. Jesus Christ. John 14, 6 says, Jesus said to him, Philip, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Because Philip had said, Jesus, show us the Father. And he says, Philip, you've seen me for all this time. Don't you know that I am in the Father? I and the Father are one. And Jesus wants us to come to, all of us, to a knowledge of the truth and to know him. 1 Timothy 2, 4 says, Jesus desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. 2 Timothy 2.25 says, Correcting opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And Titus 1.1 says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. And at the very center of the knowledge of truth is the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom of knowledge, as we just studied from Colossians 2.3. For us to know truth, we must know God through his Son, Jesus Christ. It is not enough to simply know the words of the Bible, you must know Jesus Christ. And how do we know him? All of God's good and gracious gifts come to us through the mediation of the Holy Spirit. Our knowledge of truth comes about entirely without human aid by the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. It is the divine disclosure of what was previously unknowable to us. I can attest to that. I didn't know this before the Holy Spirit worked in my heart. 1 Corinthians 2, 10 and 11 tells us, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. And this is the same Spirit that now through the saving work of Jesus Christ indwells us and gives us the thoughts of God and lets us understand them and lets us obey them and lets us bring that light to the people around us. Revelation is communication from God to man, which man hears what God wants written down. Okay? God revealed things to the, the apostles, to the prophets, to Moses. The Holy Spirit protected God's revelation from error in order to provide us with a completely true and trustworthy writing right down to the words that were used. We believe that the words that are in the Bible, now we're not talking about the different translations, they all have different words, but the original writings in the Greek and the Hebrew are God's words that were given to those people that wrote them down through the Holy Spirit. Inspiration, as opposed to revelation, inspiration is from man to paper. Okay? Man writes that which God wants written. Peter explains this inspiration in 2 Peter 1, 20-21, when he says, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The world has cheapened this definition of inspiration. Okay. The traditional definition of inspiration, still the primary one in dictionaries, if you go to search, says, to influence, move, or guide by divine or supernatural influence or action. That's what inspiration is, divine or supernatural. Inspiration, as it's used in our acrostic, is not the worldly definition, like 
boy, those athletes at the Olympics inspired me to start exercising again. I was inspired after watching that baking show to make some chocolate chip cookies. Okay? Inspiration means to be moved or guided by divine influence. It's not just being nudged. It's not just being influenced. It's being inspired by divine action. So we say, inspired by biblical truth, it's the Holy Spirit which moves in us and gets us to do something about that truth. But not only does the Holy Spirit reveal God's words to human authors and inspire them to write it down, the Holy Spirit teaches us as well, and that's known as illumination. From paper to heart. You have God to man, man to paper, paper to heart. Okay, Man receives that which God has written down. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.13, And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. And in Ephesians, Paul prays for them at chapter 1, verse 17 and 18, that the Lord, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you... That's each one of us, the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that you may know. Psalm 119 contains nine occasions on which the psalmist asks, teach me your statutes. He's looking to the Holy Spirit for instruction. Teach those statutes. Ah, but what a change once Jesus Christ came. On the walk to Emmaus after the resurrection in Luke 24, where the disciples are mourning Jesus' death and burial, and they split from Jerusalem, they're going to this little town of Emmaus, and they're sad, and Jesus shows up, and they don't recognize him. But Jesus illuminates the disciples in in Luke 24, and he says, and beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus Christ himself, the word interpreted to them. And what Christ did for the disciples in opening their minds to understand Scripture in the upper room, where it says later in Luke 24, he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Jesus did that personally when when he was here on earth. But now the Holy Spirit does it for us in our day. And it's like having Jesus whispering in our ears saying, Look! Here's what this means. Here's how this applies to me. Here's how this fits into <clears throat> pardon me, God's whole story of revelation about what the purpose of man is and where we're all going to end up in the new Jerusalem. Now, in addition to revealing and inspiring the Christian and instructing him in the way he should go, the Holy Spirit also bears witness to the believer that the Scripture is true. Well, the Holy Spirit tells us. Acts 5.32 says, And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. And Hebrews 10.15 says, The Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. And 1 John 5.6 says, The Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. Who else is the truth? Jesus is the truth. So we have once again the triune God, the Father who gives the who 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 discloses things, the Son and the Holy Spirit, giving us the scriptures which are true and trustworthy. And the Spirit is an unassailable witness to the accuracy of the Bible. You don't have to worry about putting the Holy Spirit on the witness stand and having him being tripped up in his own words. He is unassailable. He was sent from God the Father and is the Spirit of truth. John 14, 7 says, Jesus says, I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper to be with with you forever, even the spirit of truth, 
whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be with you. The Holy Spirit dwells with us and is, and is with us and discloses these things of God. And so Psalm 119 verse 9 says, getting back to our acrostic, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. We are holy and sanctified, dearly beloved, as Paul said in Colossians. And that is entirely the work of God through his Holy Spirit. He enables us to be pure and sanctified through the operation of his word. And we discussed that a couple of weeks ago. You have died, says Colossians, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's no longer you who lives. It is the new creation. And you are hidden with Christ in God. Verse 11 of Psalm 119 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Well, aside from being a reminder that we should be memorizing Scripture, so for all of you who are not, be guilty, because you should be memorizing Scripture. Because there's some of you in here I know will memorize all the statistics from today's Super Bowl. It is not a hard thing to do. You memorize what's easy to you, what's interesting to you. But besides that, besides being a reminder to memorize it, the Word is also reminding us that it is to be continually present in us. We've stored it up in our heart. Job 23.12 says, I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. Imagine treasuring the word more than food. Boy, that strikes close to home for me, because I do like food. And I would have to confess, and I do, that, Lord, you know, I would love, I would love to love your word more than anything else. You need to do this. Holy Spirit of God, you need to do this in me. And he will, and he will. So many scriptures talk about storing up God's word in our hearts. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, the Shema says at verse... At, at these verses, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit on, at your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontless between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Storing up God's word is not a casual thing according to God. But we take it that way sometimes. Storing these words in your heart is not merely a matter of disciplining ourselves to memorize them like the lines of a play or a song. It is the work of the Spirit. Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-three, which we talked about last week, has God telling the nation of Israel, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people and in Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27, God tells us, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. It is the work of God's Holy Spirit, the triune God who makes this possible for us, who stores this word up in our hearts so that we may be poor, pure, that we may be obedient. And God, through his Holy Spirit, works through his word, as it says in Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word is present in us. For our purification and our sanctification, it will relentlessly 
pierce to the division of soul and spirit and discern the thoughts and intentions of your hearts so that we will not sin. And as long as we continue to sin, God's word will continue to pierce and will continue to bring us back to him. And finally, Psalm 119.105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Famous verse. It's even a song. Some people know the song. But several things occur to us when we read this. First, God's word is a light. Jesus is the light. Our church's vision is based upon light as an acronym. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Nor will it overcome us, who are new creations in Jesus Christ. We are lights as well. A city on a hill. Lights on a bushel. Ephesians 5.8, for at one time you were darkness. We were all darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Philippians 2.15 and 16, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Yes, Jesus Christ and the word illuminate our path. But, and coming full circle here now back to September, what path are we talking about? Well, the path of life, the narrow path that Jesus referred to in the Sermon on the Mount. Take that narrow path, right? Because in our walk on that path, we are constantly assailed by temptations, sins, lusts, every device of the devil, by a crooked and twisted generation which no one could deny is what we are living in the midst of today. Our way here on earth is a way through darkness and leads close to traps, to cliffs, to abysses. If you did read Pilgrim's Progress, you saw some examples of that. And although we are constantly in danger, it seems like we're in danger of falling off the edge or straying off the path, God provides us with his word as a light to his path, if only we would use it. Because a flashlight that's sitting in your pocket is no good in the darkness, is it? You have to have it out. You need to have it on. You need to be using it. God's word provides all that we need to deal with all of these things in the world. Remember, God's word is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And thus, we find that the word of God is the sole and final authority for all matters of faith and living. Well, the next scriptural reference is John 17, 17, which provides, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. Well, chapter 17 of John is Jesus' high priestly prayer. It's the longest prayer by Jesus recorded any place in the Bible, and it is instructive for all of our prayers. But he prays first in that prayer for his glory and his Father's glory, and the next that he prays for his, his disciples. And then lastly, he prays for us, those that have not seen him, have not heard him, that they would be blessed as well. But this particular petition, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth, was offered up for his disciples. And Jesus was comforting his disciples immediately before the cross. He was going to go out to the garden. He was going to be arrested. He was going to be crucified the next day. And he's comforting them in advance because he knows what it's going to be like for them. It was a heartfelt petition from the Son to the Father. And while each petition of the prayer bears study, we're only going to look at this verse 17, where Jesus prays that the Father would then sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And the instrument of sanctification is God's word, which was contained in both the Old and the New Testaments, and of which all constitute the truth. God's word and God's truth are synonymous. 
And throughout his ministry, Jesus had affirmed this written word of God. He verified the historical accuracy of the Old Testament. He talked about Jonah, he talked about the flood, he talked about Lot's wife. He talked about a lot of things that people today say, well, those are myths. No, Jesus talked about them. They were real. These are things that the Holy Spirit has has had written down for us. And he saw the Old Testament as having been perfectly fulfilled in him. Remember, he told the Pharisees, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. And we're not talking about those 633 commandments that the Pharisees had. We're talking about the law. We're talking about God's word. He viewed his own words, Jesus did, as words from God. And that He revealed the Father through everything that he said and did. If we look at Jesus and we think about what he said and think about what he did and the love and the kindness and the the healing and all those things, we're looking at what God the Father is and what God the Father would do. And when Jesus referred to the word being truth, he was talking about the entirety of the scriptures, both Old and New Testament. All of it, from Genesis to Revelation, is necessary for our sanctification, for the believer's sanctification. And it is the only thing that's necessary for our sanctification. And finally, the last scriptural verse is uh, 1 Peter. He says, So put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Now, Peter is not saying that our salvation and our forgiveness of sins is dependent upon anything than faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But like Paul, he tells us that our growth into spiritual maturity is the goal of the Holy Spirit working in us. Remember that from Colossians, that you may be presented fully mature in Christ at the last day. Verse 1 of what I just read contains those put-offs. You remember that, the put-offs, the take-offs that we discussed while studying Colossians. Put off our old nature, but in doing so, we must substitute something in its place. And so what we do is we cherish our new life in Christ by craving spiritual nourishment and growing up in our spiritual condition or sanctification. Crave pure spiritual milk. Put on a thirst, a craving, a hunger for the word. And by telling us to be like newborn infants, Peter is referring to that soul and desperate hunger for milk which the newborn first exhibits. Anybody that's had little kids knows that. What do they want? Milk, right? It's the only thing they want. They crave it. They have to have it to live. They have to have it. And Peter's saying, put yourself back there again. And it's a singular and relentless craving because the infant's life depends upon it. Act as if your life depends upon this pure spiritual milk of the word. And it does. Our life does depend upon that. Peter refers to this pure spiritual Spiritual milk, pure meaning the absence of fraud or deceit, and not mixed with anything else, right? Particularly not with earthly philosophies or worldly teachings. Spiritual refers to the Word of God. The Word gives life, as Peter also said in the next verse, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. That this spiritual nourishment was essential was affirmed by Jesus when he told Satan in the wilderness it's written man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God so we are to crave pure spiritual milk but what would our postmodern culture have us feast on instead fast food 
food with no nutritional value, radio, television, movies, politics, COVID, the internet, games, books, periodicals, wokeism, anything goesism. That's what the culture would have us feast on. All of these cause us to be spiritually malnourished. But just as importantly, they dull our appetite for genuine spiritual food. So when we get filled up on that, we don't really want to do anything else. And why should we be craving this pure spiritual milk? That by it we might grow up into our salvation. The result of a baby drinking his mother's milk is physical growth. The result of our drinking pure spiritual milk is our spiritual growth. It is by drinking the truth that the Holy Spirit grows and matures us. We should not be content with our present condition of spiritual development, whatever it is. Whatever it is. We should constantly be motivated for genuine spiritual growth and a sincere desire to be satisfied with nothing less than the Word of God. 1 Peter 2.3 concludes the thought of verses 1 and 2, which talks about craving pure spiritual milk by saying, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Psalm 34.8 says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 37.3 tells us to live in the land. Feed on his faithfulness. Taste and see. Blessed indeed is the man who tastes and sees that the Lord is good and who craves only that pure spiritual milk, who feeds on God's faithfulness, who in the words of the psalmist at Psalm 40 makes the Lord his trust and who does not go after a lie. So we look again at the eye and our acrostic, inspired by biblical truth. We believe that the word of God is the sole and final authority for all matters of faith and living. Therefore, we teach and preach from the gospel, or from the Bible, not human resources. In this church, we follow the admonition of the word, not to be deceived by worldly philosophies or smooth words, or to be deceived and consumed by the wolves who circulate among and around us. We arm ourselves against those things by the pure milk of God's word. Your elders and your pastors are charged with that, as are you. We will not add to, we will not take away from or distort God's truth from this pulpit and in any of our teaching. Deuteronomy 4.2 says, You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. That's pretty clear. Revelation 22, in the two verses before the end of the Bible, says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. The wisdom of man is foolishness. So we do not preach that foolishness, but rather we teach only from God's word from the Bible. God's word is true and sufficient for everything we face in life. Through Jesus, God is restoring everything that sin has ruined. Every problem in this fallen and sinful world finds its solution in Jesus Christ and his word. Every single one. We do not go elsewhere for the answers. Friends, God's word contains the very words of life. If there is anyone here today who has not heard and accepted these words of life, today's your day. Because in his word, God tells us that each and every one of us is a sinner. Each and every one of us is deserving of God's punishment and death, but God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to pay the price for our sins. 
so that we can escape this eternal death. Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. But on the third day, God raised him from the dead, defeated death, and Jesus is now sitting next to the throne of God and is the Lord of heaven and earth and is the word that we need. And if you confess your sins and repent of them, and if you acknowledge that Jesus is Lord because of his saving work, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Friends, pray that prayer in your heart today so that you might also taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, your word is truth. Jesus Christ is your word. Jesus Christ is truth. We are inspired. We are given divine inspiration, illumination from you that we might know your word that we might use your word in reaching this dark and sinful world around us and that it would protect us from this twisted generation in which we find ourselves, Lord. When we're confused by what we hear, we go to your word and find truth and we find a rock that we can rely upon, Lord. We ask that you would bless us, bless our preparation for Dirk coming to pray for us, Lord. And we bless you and thank you for this acronym which tells us what this church is about, Lord. We pray these things in the sweet name of Jesus.